I would uh, encourage you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 13. And also in the bulletin is an, a sheet with an outline on the front page and on the back side, questions that uh, you can uh, use and for parents in, in uh, going over the spiritual truth with your parents, also for sharing with one another. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning... In verse 13, you know, over and over again in Scripture, God promises protection for his people. That truth is clearly stated throughout Scripture over and over again. But on top of that, it is illustrated time after time in the history of Israel. Think of when they were slaves in Egypt and, and uh, as, in as desperate a situation as could be, and God protected them as they left Egypt. That becomes an example that God takes the people of Israel to back over and over again to show them of God's protection. They entered into the land and there were enemies there. Remember, there was the situation with the Philistines and Goliath. And God used David, protected the people by using this teenage shepherd boy in, in defeating the giant Goliath. And over and over and over again, God promises to protect his people and it is illustrated so often. Uh, in the um, <clears throat> even our Lord Jesus Christ experienced this protection uh, from God. He was protected by his heavenly Father in a very striking way at the very beginning of his life, beginning with his birth. He needed protection because not everyone was welcoming him. Remember at his birth, the angels came and appeared to the shepherds and they were rejoicing. And the shepherds came and they were rejoicing. The wise men came and they were rejoicing. But don't get the idea that everyone was rejoicing. The prime enemy at the very beginning was the king of Israel at that time, whose name was Herod. And as we are going to see in this passage, Herod decided he needed to kill this baby, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's an amazing account here of what God did to protect uh, his, his child, his son. Uh, Herod was a tyrant. You know, during his reign, he killed his favorite wife. He had several wives. He killed his favorite one. He killed three of his sons. Why? Because he thought they were conspiring against him. So it is not surprising that when the wise men came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That right away, his ears would be be perked up and thinking, ah, a rival. You know what I do to my rivals. I get rid of them. And so the the plan was hatched by King Herod to kill the baby Jesus. So immediately Herod began making this plan. And uh, the plan did not work, as we are going to see here, because God intervened. First of all, in our last study, we saw that he warned the wise, God warned through a dream the wise men, don't go back to Herod like he asked you to. Because Herod had told the wise men, when you find this baby, you please come back to me and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him. And obviously he didn't want to worship him, he wanted to kill him. And so God intervened to protect his son by giving the wise men that message in a dream. Don't return to Herod. And so we've already seen God's protection in that way. Now in the passage we come to this morning, we see a second way in which God protected his son, his son, the Messiah, the king of Israel. Uh, Remember the theme of Matthew's gospel is Jesus the Messiah, the King of Israel. Uh, 
And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Messiah will be rejected. But that rejection will only be temporary. And God's plan won't be thwarted. And we begin to to see that right here. That God is greater than any power that would try to destroy Christ. He's greater than any power that would try to destroy us. And God is, is, is working his plan out for the Messiah. So as we read this passage, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word and stand and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. <clears throat> Matthew two thirteen. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. You may be seated. You'll notice on our outline that first of all, in verses 13 to 15, we have the escape to Egypt. Sometimes it has been called the flight to Egypt, fleeing, escaping uh, to Egypt. That begins in verse 13. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, that is left uh, Bethlehem and they've left Israel without going to, to back to Jerusalem, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now it mentions here this angel of the Lord. That's not the first time an angel of the Lord has appeared. Back in chapter 1, we saw an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph when he was very troubled because he's learned that Mary, to whom he is engaged, is with child. And he knows that he is not the father. They have not had any kind of physical relationship. And he's very troubled. And the Old Testament law said in a situation where, where something like this has happened, that, that the guilty party is, is to be stoned to death. And, and Joseph doesn't know what to do. And we saw in chapter 1 that an angel of the Lord appeared to him with the news, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, and explains that this child has been supernaturally conceived by the power of God, and that, uh, that uh, Mary is a virgin. And so Joseph was very encouraged by that. Now, an angel had appeared to Mary to tell her of what was going to happen, and that's in the Gospel of Luke. And there we, are, we learn the angel is Gabriel. 
For whatever reason, the angel is not named in Matthew, but it could very well also have been Gabriel. I would, I would assume that it also is Gabriel. But you'll notice that this, this angel appears in a dream. Uh, this was one of the ways prior to the coming of Christ coming to the completion of the New Testament in which God revealed information to his people from time to time. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, it says God who in the past in many different ways has revealed himself to people, spoken to them through many different ways. Now he he has for one final time, revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And we do not look for dreams today to be some way, somehow, that God is going to communicate something to us. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He came, and then his word has been written. We have the written word of God. Joseph didn't have that. And God spoke to him this time and the previous time uh, through a dream. And then through the dream, the angel. But here's what, what the angel says. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now, Nazareth was 55 miles north. You would think, well, maybe they should go back to Nazareth. But there's a problem with that. Herod is the king over Nazareth as well. So he doesn't say go to Nazareth. That's not going to work. Why Egypt? First of all, Egypt was nearby. But secondly, it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Rome was the conquering power of all of this territory, Egypt, Israel, and so on. But in Egypt, the Romans had put someone else up as a king and a representative of the Roman government. So uh, this guy in Egypt was not the tyrant that King Herod was. He wasn't paranoid. But most important, the most important reason why it was Egypt is because it would fulfill a prophecy that is in the Old Testament book of Hosea. The Old Testament prophet Hosea in chapter 1 gives a prophecy that's going to play here about Jesus in Egypt. Now, it was 75 miles to the Egyptian border. They probably did not just cross the border. Oh, good, we're in Egypt. We're going to stay here. We assume that they went to a city called Alexandria. Alexandria would have been another 100 miles. Why Alexandria? Well, for several hundred years, there had been a large gathering of Jewish people who had settled in this city of Alexandria. You may have heard of the Septuagint. The Septuagint, a couple of hundred years before the time of Christ, was the Hebrew translation of, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Where was that translation done? It was in Alexandria because there were so many Jews and it was a very important Jewish center. And we could imagine Joseph and Mary very possibly could have relatives who live in Alexandria. So it's not a big deal, but just to kind of throw in some of the background, where did they go? Probably this city of Alexandria where there were so many other, so many other Jews. But the angel goes on to tell uh, Joseph to... Um, to flee to Egypt and to remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God knows better than Joseph the threats to Jesus. Joseph is completely unaware until this comes, but God is not unaware. God knows the threats. And you can think about our lives. God knows the threats that we face. They're not a surprise to God. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, there's a robber in their house or something like that. There is no threat to us that is unknown to God. He knows everything. 
And uh, so God intervenes according to his will. And when he allows uh, something uh, to happen to his people, it's always for a purpose. Now, later, Jesus is, as you remember, there's going to be the plan of uh, the Jewish leaders to put Jesus on the cross. You talk about a threat to Jesus, that was a threat. God knew that one too, just as much as he knows this one. But in that case, it was always the eternal plan of the Father that Jesus, the Son, would die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for all that would repent and believe in Jesus. And so in that case, the Father did not protect him. But there was a reason for that, for the great purpose that God was going to accomplish. But we'll talk about that uh, some more. Now, also think about the fact that God could have protected Jesus in Bethlehem. Certainly, he has the power. He could have blinded Herod's soldiers so that they could never find Jesus. He could have destroyed the soldiers. He could have done all those amazing things. But he chose to protect him by ordinary means. And that's one of the things that we have to remember about God as well. So many times we're looking for something spectacular that God would do and some answer to prayer. But so often God uses the ordinary means and he does that uh, here as well. Then in verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night. So I assume the dream was at the beginning of Joseph's sleep. And it was so strong to Joseph that he got up that very night, got Mary up and Jesus up and bundled up and uh, whatever possessions they had, which were not many because we knew they were very poor. Uh, We saw a little bit of that in a previous study. Uh, When Jesus was born, the Old Testament law said certain sacrifices were to be made. And the poor wouldn't be able to afford an expensive lamb, but just bring two turtle doves, which were very, very, very cheap. And that's what Joseph and Mary did. So they didn't have a whole lot of material goods. It was probably very easy for them just that night to get everything together and rush out of there in obedience uh, to God. So he rose and took the child and he departed to Egypt, verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. That could have been a few months possibly a year, and we know from history the timing of the death of Herod. It wouldn't have been any more than a year after the time that Jesus uh, was born. So they weren't there a whole long time. But then Matthew says, and Matthew in writing his gospel is writing to Jewish people, and he really emphasizes the prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament and points out that they were fulfilled in Christ, and he does that here. He says, uh, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And the prophet is Hosea, and the exact verse is chapter 11 and verse 1. And in that prophecy, Hosea wrote, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea, when he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that in the context of talking about the Jewish people when they were slaves in Egypt. And a number of times in the Older Testament, Israel is called the Son of God, child of God. And that's the terminology that Hosea uh, uses. And uh, so he, he says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, the literal fulfillment of that in Hosea was when the Jewish people were delivered from Egypt. And God could say of my son Israel... Out of Egypt, I've brought them to the promised land. 
Now, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he is writing this, he is saying that Jesus' trip from Egypt to the promised land, Israel, was pictured by Israel leaving Egypt under Moses. He's saying, look what, look what God did here. He, he gave us a picture back in our history of what he is doing right now with delivering Jesus from Egypt. And, you know, Matthew probably recognizes there is a remarkable parallel between Jesus' time and the time in Egypt. Remember the story of Moses? And Moses is this little baby boy, and the Pharaoh has issued a decree that all the Hebrew baby boys would be killed. And God, in this amazing way, preserved the life of Moses to be the deliverer of the Jewish people. What an interesting parallel with what's happening with Jesus. There is another tyrant, not Pharaoh, but Herod, who is killing baby boys. And in that context, God delivers that little baby boy out of Egypt. I have called my son. God is directing Joseph to take his family and leave Egypt, just like he directed Moses to take God's son, Israel, out of Egypt. Interesting parallel. Then we continue in verses 16 to 18. We have the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he saw, to Herod, their leaving by a different way was a trick. Now to the wise men, it was not, not a trick. They were simply obeying the word of God. God had revealed to them, don't go back to Herod. But Herod, of course, sees it as a trick. But it's really something that God had directed. So when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And history says you don't want to be on the receiving end of Herod's fury. And that happens here. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region, just to make sure he got him. It wasn't just the city limits of Bethlehem, but it was the whole region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men when they had arrived and telling what time the star appeared and so on. That's how I came up with that, uh, that time frame. Now, how many babies would have been involved? Uh, this has often been embellished. And people have said, oh my goodness, must have been hundreds, thousands of babies. And then critics of the Bible have come along and said, you know, if, if, that, if it was that big of a massacre, you would think we would have a record of it in secular history. And there is no record in secular history so far of anything that has been found. And so there are critics of the Bible who have then said, see, the Bible is not always accurate. But was it really hundreds? Was it really thousands? Well, really, when you think about it, Bethlehem was small, uh, probably didn't have more than 300 people. If you include the surrounding area, maybe as many as 2,000 people. Uh, Probably with that number of people, you had three or four dozen children under two. Half of them, let's say, were boys. That would mean from 18 to 24 were killed. So it certainly was a tragic, tragic thing and a terrible thing for those families. But as far as being on the scale of mass murders that have often happened by tyrants like Herod, it wasn't that big. And that would explain why we don't have a record of it in secular history. But continuing uh, in verse 17, this was fulfilled. So here's another fulfillment of prophecy of the Messiah by the prophet Jeremiah. 
And the specific verse in Jeremiah is chapter 31, verse 15. And in this passage, uh, and, it, and it all, it's connected with what uh, Shalom was sharing and in, 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 uh, introducing uh, the first hymn. Uh, Jeremiah laments. Uh, Jeremiah, he wrote the prophet, the book of Jeremiah. He also wrote the book of Lamentations, which means laments. And laments are sad cries, just, just broken hearted cries. And he was called the weeping prophet. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah is living through a terrible time in Israel's history. The Babylonians have come and they have conquered. And they are taking some of the choicest of the, of the Jewish children, particularly the boys, and taking them captive and taking them to Egypt, or excuse me, to Babylon. And in the midst of that, as they are destroyed, and there's this huge deportation of forcibly moving Jewish people out of the land of Israel uh, to the land, land of Babylon, Jeremiah laments. And Jer- this chapter, chapter 31, is in the middle of four chapters, Jeremiah 30 to 33, that even in the midst of this lament, these chapters are filled with comfort and even joy because the chapters look beyond the grief that Israel was going through at that moment as, as her boys and her youth were being taken away. And looking beyond the grief, Jeremiah looks ahead in history to the coming of the Messiah and God's deliverance of Israel from all of that suffering and from all of that bondage. So here, Matthew, of course, knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that is, is the source of that joy that Jeremiah is talking about in those four chapters in the midst of this lament, of this great sorrow concerning the Jewish boys being carried in captivity to Egypt. And so Matthew, in quoting this, is pointing out that uh, now at the birth of Jesus, that at this time more of Israel's children have been killed. Some in the time of Jeremiah, now he points out, now some more have been killed in our time. And Israel's choicest son, that is Jesus, the Messiah, could have easily been a victim of that. And, of course, at this point, the people in Israel don't know that Israel's choicest son has been born, Jesus, the Messiah. But that son is being sent into exile like the Jewish boys were at the time of Jeremiah. And so Matthew sees this parallel, just like there was the parallel with the verse from Hosea, so there is the parallel here with the time of Jeremiah. And so look, uh, continuing then, at the quotation from Jeremiah in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah. Now Ramah is 10 miles north of Jerusalem, which would put it about 13 miles north of Bethlehem. So it's in that same region that uh, uh, Herod was killing the boys in. But the significance of Ramah is that according to Jeremiah and other passages in the Older Testament, Ramah was the site where Babylon gathered the Jewish boys together that they were taking to Babylon. It would be kind of like if, if an invader of, of the United States um, was gathering up uh, boy, American boys to take to a foreign country and uh, decided, oh, we're going to gather them in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And uh, so East Brunswick, New Jersey would be this site of this terrible, terrible sorrow 
and, and tragedy that is happening. Well, that's kind of like Rama was at that particular time. And so Jeremiah, as he's writing this in, in verse 18, a voice was heard in Rama. And he remembers that there was comfort in Rama. Yes, there was sorrow. But there was comfort because of the promises that God gave Jeremiah to write of the future deliverance and coming of Messiah. They can be comforted. These families going through this sorrow can be comforted by knowing that this exiled one, the coming Messiah, is going to return and he's going to provide salvation that will reunite them with their children someday. So the verse continues, a voice was heard in Rama, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. You remember who Rachel was? Rachel was Jacob's wife. And you remember the terrible things that happened in Jacob uh, uh, was a conniver and so on, and the whole thing with being tricked and he's married to Leah, but then there's Rachel, his favorite wife, and she, in a very sorrowful time for, for Jacob, died uh, not very far from Bethlehem, just outside of Bethlehem, and was buried there. So that's near Ramah, too. And Rachel, because notice here, it says, a voice heard in Rama, weeping loud, lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, this matriarch of the Jewish people, was con- often considered the mother of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. You remember after the time of Solomon, there was this rebellion of the ten northern tribes. And the northern kingdom was two, the two prominent tribes in the northern kingdom were Ephraim and Manasseh. Who were Ephraim and Manasseh? Not sons of Jacob, but grandsons. They were the sons of Joseph. And so they would have been the grandchildren of Rachel. And so she was considered the mother of the northern kingdom. Then she was considered the mother of the southern kingdom through Benjamin. You remember that Benjamin, one of the, 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 the son of, of Jacob and, and Rachel, a favorite son of, of uh, Jacob after he thought that Joseph was dead. But anyway, the tribe of Benjamin, when the land was divided among the Jewish people, the tribe of Benjamin was right here at Bethlehem and Ramah. And so Rachel was considered the mother of the northern kingdom and the mother of the southern kingdom. So that's why it says here, Rachel weeping for her children, the sons who are being slaughtered, the sons who are being taken into this terrible, terrible uh, captivity. And so it continues. Weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Some of you know that sorrow of losing a child and just the heartbreak that it is and it continues on the rest of the parent's life. And that's kind of the picture here of Rachel. But the message of Matthew is that God will provide comfort through this baby, Jesus, who has been preserved in Egypt. And so the baby has been preserved. He's the one that's going to bring the comfort through his work on the cross and salvation and delivering Israel. And he is going to successfully survive and he will be back in the land of Israel. And so that's, that's where we are going then in verses 19 through 23. The return to Nazareth. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. There's another appearance in a dream. God revealing 
You didn't have the completed word of God. You didn't have all of the ministry of Christ. And God was still speaking, as it says in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, in many different ways. But he has now totally, last of all, spoken through his son. But that's not been completed yet. So this is one of the ways. And so he communicates in a dream again to Joseph in Egypt that Herod has died. Now, it's going to take a while for the news of Herod's death to get to, to Egypt and, and to get to Alexandria, if that's where Joseph and Mary were. They did not have the Internet, right? And, and news traveled slowly. But God knows And so God gives this news to Joseph before anyone in that land knew a thing about it. And so then it continues saying in verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But now we've got a new problem. Verse 22. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. Herod's son, who became the ruler of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and that area, is his son named Archelaus. Now, Herod had a couple of other sons, and, and the land was divided between them, but Archelaus has, has this area that includes Bethlehem. Uh, specifically, he became the ruler of Judea, Samaria, Idumea. Those were the names of three different parts uh, of the land of Israel at that time. Archelaus is noted for tyranny, just like his father was. He was so brutal and so ineffective in ruling that several years after this, the Jewish people complained to the emperor so much that the emperor took him off the throne. But that hasn't happened yet. So what are they facing in Bethlehem? Another threat, another tyrant. And uh, so Herod, uh, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning, uh, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream. So it happens again that God spoke to him through this dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. The reason he goes there is a different son of King Herod is now the king of Galilee, which is not just a lake, but the whole region. And his name is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, although he's a Herod and uh, he's not a friendly guy, he's not the tyrant that his father and his brother were. And so uh, he takes these... being told, take Jesus to Galilee. Then verse 23, and he, that is uh, Joseph and, and his family, went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now you remember from chapter 1 that Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary lived at the time of the conception of Jesus. Probably both of them had lived in Nazareth all their lives until they went to Bethlehem just before the time of Christ. It's home to them. They had family there. It's natural that they would go there. But look what Matthew includes, an interesting little detail. He went to the city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets. Now that's plural. Previously, we have a prophecy from a prophet, Hosea from a prophet, Jeremiah. But this is a prophecy from prophets. It's plural. It's not so... The point is, this is not a specific prophecy that he's referring to. You might say this is a blend prophecy. It's a composite of something that was prophesied numerous times... Uh, in the Old Testament prophets. It's a summary. That'd, be, that'd probably be the best term. 
What we're going to read is a summary of something that many prophets said in the Old Testament. Also, note that Matthew doesn't introduce this quotation by saying, as it was written in. Because, again, he's not talking, you cannot turn to a particular verse in your Old Testament and say, oh, there it is, the prophecy that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. It's, it's, it's a, a summary of a whole bunch of, of prophecies. Now, the point is, he shall be called a Nazarene. That is a person who is living in or from the city of Nazareth. Don't get confused with the word Nazarite. Sometimes you hear people uh, translate it that way, uh, that he would be called a Nazarite. A Nazarite is not a person from Nazareth. A Nazarite, uh, in, in the Old Testament law, God established uh, something called the Nazarite vow. If, if you were filled with thanksgiving to God for something that he has done, uh, there was something called the Nazarite vow that you could take that would show uh, your just thankfulness and praise to God. And the Nazarites, then there were some, some side issues where they, they didn't uh, drink any, any wine or grape juice and they didn't touch dead bodies and so on. whole different story on that. Don't mix that up with Jesus. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Now, what's the significance of that? <clears throat> well, the Jews in Jesus' day thought of Nazareth as a little hick town. There wasn't much there. There wasn't much to it. The intellectuals didn't live there. The elites didn't live there. They were very common people. And Nazareth has no comparison to the glories that the Old Testament speaks of of Messiah. Messiah is going to reign in Jerusalem. He's going to have a throne. He's going to have glory. There's no glory in Nazareth. And so in Jesus' ministry, people fell into that trap of the culture of thinking, oh, Nazareth. That's just a hick town. Nothing glorious there. Well, no significance that he is from Nazareth, that he's a Nazarene. Uh, remember when Nathaniel was introduced to Philip? And Philip tells, or excuse me, when, when Philip, uh, well, when, Nazar when Nathaniel learned about Jesus from Philip, Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was the common belief about this hick town, Nazareth. So how does this fit into prophecy? Well, it was prophesied over and over in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, that the Messiah would be rejected by his people. Uh, I'm going to give you some references. We're not going to take time to, to look them up. But just a sample of these Old Testament prophecies. There's Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 22, verse, uh, or, or excuse me, Psalm 69, verse 8. And then Psalm 69, 20 and 21. There's Isaiah 11, 1. Isaiah 49, 7. Isaiah 53, 23. And Daniel 9, 26. And there are others that are there that prophesy about uh, Jesus is going to be despised and he's going to be rejected. And the scorn that was given to Jesus was later given to Christians. They were ridiculed as being, oh, they are of the sect of the Nazarene. So Jesus was despised and as and his followers were despised. What abuse! Jesus, the sinless Son of God, endured for us. And it began at his birth. Began as early as, as it could possibly be. And then as he's growing up and he's becoming known, they're saying, he's from Nazareth, a Nazarene. 
Can any good thing come from Nazareth? So it's an amazing prophecy of the Messiah that is scattered throughout uh, the Old Testament. Now, think about that abuse that Jesus endured for us. And in all of this, all of this abuse that he went through all of his life, God protected his son, that the work of salvation would come, that we could be saved from our sin. It could be accomplished on the cross, and God protected his son. God was not about to let a tyrant, an earthly king, ruin God's plan. And God spared the life of Jesus and protected him. Well, the next time I preach, we will continue on uh, to chapter 3 and John the Baptist and so on. But what, what do we do with this passage? How do we apply uh, this passage? <clears throat> this passage is a great illustration of God's promise throughout Scripture that God will protect his own. If you're a child of God, if you've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you have been brought into the family of God, you have promises throughout Scripture of God's protection. Let's, we won't be back to Matthew, so you don't have to hold on to it. But turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 18. Just one example of these promises that God gave to his people. It's Psalm 18. And in Psalm 18, verse 2, we have God's protection. And he shows that it's limitless and limitless. And it can take many different forms. And he lists five in this verse. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So he gives us an illustration of God's protection of us, that he is a rock that cannot be moved by anyone that would harm us. They have to get through him to harm us. Secondly, a fortress. Now, a fortress was a place of safety. It had great walls around it and so on, and which, in this case, the enemy cannot reach. Then he uses the term of a shield, and a shield becomes, comes between us and the enemy. And then the horn of salvation, that's not a horn you blow like a trumpet, that's an animal horn. And animals, some animals, as you know, have horns and, and they use them to protect themselves. And he says, God is that horn of salvation for his people. And then there's, he's a stronghold, high above all the enemies and impregnable. Great pictures of God's promise to protect his people. So the point is, when you need protection, look to God. That's the point of Psalm 18, verse 2. But how does that explain the hard times when God seems to have disappeared? There are times when we are going through something fearful and we cry out to God. And you may feel like God has disappeared I haven't seen God deliver me yet. Well, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing he was heading to the cross, and he cries out. And of course, for the cross, it's not just the pain of the nails, but he is bearing the weight of sin. He's bearing the judgment of God against our sin. And he realizes to be separated from God to become sin and it's, it's just staggering and he cries out to God if it be possible let this cup be passed from me and he does that three times 
And God sends an angel and strengthens him in the midst of that, but does not remove the cup. Because in that case, it was God's will that he would go and suffer and be separated from God by sin and die on that cross. But it was God's plan. And so God did not protect him. All these other times, God has protected. So how are we to handle that in our lives? Turn over to the book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1. We have to realize the place of trials in our life. Yes, wonderful promises of God's protection. And I could imagine we could take a couple of hours just to open it up for an open open mic for people to share of testimony of how God has protected us. But then there are times where God lifts his hand of protection and we go through suffering. Could be illness, could be financial, all kinds of things. What are we to do? We are to realize the place of trials in our life. Look at James chapter 1, verse 4. Excuse me, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. So James is writing to fellow believers. And he says, count it all joy. He's talking about going through trials, as we'll see. So even when a trial is very severe, we have joy. And, and, And in Hebrews... When Jesus went to the cross, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Even Jesus knew that. So he says, consider it all joy, even in the dark hour. God is in control, and he is working out his plan. Therefore, we can have joy. And what others um, might be doing to us that they mean for evil... God's going to work for good. He promises that. And you have a wonderful illustration of that with Joseph in the book of Genesis. When he reunites with his brothers who are afraid, oh no, now he's going to take vengeance on us. And he says, what you meant for evil, God allowed, God directed, God brought about for good. And so we are to have Uh, that kind of attitude. Some of you have suffered a lot more than I have, and you've had illnesses and trials and problems, and you could give testimony of how God used that in in your life. The hardest physical trial I've ever gone through was, I think it was in 2009, I had pancreatitis. I wind up in the hospital I was in the hospital for a week. I have never had so much pain in all my life. And there was so little relief for that pain. I'll never forget all that pain. And uh, I was told, by the way, at the beginning of that time by, by the doctor that, oh, I forget, 80% of people in the world who get pancreatitis die from it. Well, that's encouraging when you're going in the hospital. What he didn't say, I learned later, that that ratio is not the same in America. And uh, But anyway, I, I survived it, but then had another, about a month before I could return to normal activity. I mean, but, you know, I came out of that just even thanking God for it because of what God did in my life and drawing me closer to him. And then I asked Tara, because I went to the hospital taken in an ambulance and didn't have time to get my Bible. And later I asked Terry to bring my Bible and my Bible's there. And that opened up so many opportunities of talking to nurses and others. And so terrible, terrible situation, but I praise God for it, even with joy. But anyway, he goes on, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
this trial is used by God for the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith has two aspects of testing. One is we test, for instance, someone builds a bridge, and they test it to make sure that it's going to hold the weight. And so it's, it's to give approval. And that's one purpose of, of testing. Another one is it's also a refining process. It's called testing. And in those days, they would take gold and silver and it would be mined and it would have lots of impurities in it and it would be put in the fire so that it could be purified. The impurities would be melted away and the pure would be left. And so these trials are something that God uses as a refining process in our lives and also to a test of of the approval um, after careful scrutiny. So it's a testing of your faith and it produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is faithfulness over the long haul. And he says, and let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. That doesn't mean sinless, but it means fully developed. It means mature might be a better word. That you might be mature in your Christian life. And that you might be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Not lacking in anything of spiritual importance. So God protects and he promises protection. But in those times when he allows us to go through the trial, it's always for this purpose and that we would be mature, lacking in nothing. So I say this to say, are you fearful? of an illness? Are you fearful of financial problems? Are you fearful of war? Fearful of crime? All of these things. Well, we have a heavenly Father who promises to protect us. But we also know that if he allows us to go through that trial, it's not that he's forsaken us. But he has a purpose in that. So should we fear? No. Let's close by turning to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Isaiah 41, verse 10. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. The one who promises to be with us is the one who is all-powerful. I promise to be with you. Do not or be not dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Don't be down. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Can you think of better words than those? What a promise that God has given us. And so as we think about Matthew 2 and God's protection of his son, to realize this is the power of God at work. And we are to trust him. If you have trusted Christ as your savior, repented of your sin, been born again, this is your God who upholds you. And you can trust him. He says, don't fear, but trust. Now, if you're here this morning or watching on the webcast, and you are not one of the children of God, you have not come to God in repentance of sin and faith in Christ, this is not your promise. This is for God's children. And I pray that this passage and going through these things, the Spirit of God would use them in your heart and life to bring you to that conviction. Yes, I'm a sinner, 
I do not have a relationship with God. I do not have a heavenly father. And repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. That he is the one who paid the price of the sin of everyone that believe in, would believe in Christ. And that can be yours. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. Come and trust him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for protecting your son. How different this world would be if you had not done that. But you always accomplish your purposes and your plans. And you did when Jesus was a baby. You did through his life and even when he went to the cross. And Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your sons, the children of God. And that you are the heavenly Father. You are the shepherd of Psalm 23. And you care for the flock. And you care for us. Father, may we always trust you. And when we are tempted to fear that we would remember your promise. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.